From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, the head of Hamas says the group is close to reaching a truce with Israel. Air China's resumed direct flights between Beijing and Washington, D.C. A new report from the United Nations includes a grim warning about rising global temperatures. In business, the China International Supply Chain Expo. In sports, China faces South Korea in a World Cup qualifier. In culture and entertainment, China's top buzzwords for 2023. Now checking the day's top stories. The chief of Hamas says the group is close to reaching a truce with Israel. Ismail Haniyeh made the remarks on Tuesday on social media site Telegram. This came after 12 people were killed at a Gaza hospital encircled by Israeli tanks. Gaza's health officials say 700 patients and staff were under Israeli fire at the Indonesian hospital in the enclave's northeast. Palestinian media say the hospital was hit by artillery rounds. Israel says its troops fired back at fighters and tried to minimize harm to non-combatants. The Palestinian side has so far reported over 13,000 deaths, while Israel's uh, tally is around 1,200. Uh, Isabel Debray has more. Palestinian health authorities say that Israeli shells crashed into the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza, killing 12 people and wounding dozens more. Doctors I spoke to in the Indonesian hospital said they heard heavy fighting echoing just outside the hospital walls and that Israeli tanks were actually surrounding the entire facility. We actually recently received word from the International Committee of the Red Cross that they successfully evacuated 200 badly wounded patients and their relatives to the southern Gaza Strip. But that still means that 400 staff, doctors, 
and more patients and their relatives are still stranded in the Indonesian hospital that has come under siege and has been surrounded by Israeli forces. Now, this is the latest hospital to come under attack and to be forcibly evacuated by the Israeli army during this war, as Israel accuses Hamas of using hospitals as cover for militant activities, while Palestinians accuse the Israeli military of relentlessly firing and targeting civilian infrastructure. Now, we've also seen heavy fighting in central Gaza, as well as intense Israeli airstrikes hit two densely populated refugee camps, Burj refugee camp and Nusrat refugee camp. In these strikes, over 100 Palestinians were killed in just a few minutes. So the Hamas militant group announced that it fired a barrage of rockets at Tel Aviv in Israel. And there were no impacts, there were no casualties. And if this were the beginning of the war, when Hamas was firing hundreds of rockets a day, this would not have even made the news. But this time, this was the first time that Hamas actually fired rockets in at least a few days since last Friday. And so what this shows is that Israel's efforts to wipe out Hamas capabilities and rocket launch sites has been picking up pace and succeeding, but it also shows that Hamas still has rockets in its arsenal. That was Isabel Debray reporting. Gaza's largest hospitals transferred 28 premature babies to a facility in Egypt. Israel earlier seized Al-Shifa Hospital to search for what it said uh, were underground uh, tunnels uh, used by Hamas. The World Health Organization says all evacuated newborns were fighting serious infections. Nur Harazin has more from Gaza. Well, after days of waiting, the doctors here in Gaza managed to evacuate premature babies from the Ashifa Hospital to the Emirati Hospital in uh, Rafah, and from there they were uh, transferred to Egypt to get uh, treatment there. The number of premature babies inside the Ashifa Hospital a week ago was 38 premature babies. However, some of them died inside the Ashifa Hospital while the Ashifa Hospital was besieged by the Israeli troops and some died on the way to uh, Rafah border. However, happily now, of course, the uh, premature babies were uh, transferred to Egypt because even though if they evacuated the Ashifa Hospital, they cannot be transferred to other hospitals here in Gaza because of the lack of uh, fuel and electricity. So actually the hospitals, the other hospitals here in Gaza cannot provide for these uh, babies. Uh, now also Ashifa Hospital is a closed uh, Israeli uh, military uh, base. There is actually patients, still Gazan patients inside the Ashifa Hospital. However, uh, doctors cannot uh, contact with them as uh, the uh, Israeli forces cut all connections and of course banning anyone from uh, entering. That was Noor Harazin reporting. Chinese President Xi Jinping and his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron have agreed that the two-state solution is the fundamental way to solve the cycle of Palestinian-Israeli conflict. The two leaders discussed the matter over the phone on Monday. On the same day, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi held talks with visiting foreign ministers from Arab and Islamic countries in Beijing. Uh, Wang said China is ready to work with the Arab and Islamic nations to push forward and end the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict and ease the humanitarian crisis. China is willing to work with Arab and Islamic nations to make efforts to end the conflict in Gaza as soon as possible, ease the humanitarian crisis, and push for a just and lasting settlement for the Palestinian issue 
as soon as possible. Wang urged the parties to the conflict to comply with international law, while calling for convening a larger international peace conference to address the crisis. The representatives from the Arab and Islamic countries called on the international community to take action to push for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The Arab and Islamic foreign ministers have chosen China as the first stop on their agenda to de-escalate the Palestine-Israel conflict. Associate Professor Wang Jin of the Institute of Middle East Studies at Northwest University in Xi'an says this goes to show that China's active role in keeping the peace is widely acknowledged. I think China's role is very important and has already been widely praised and accepted by not by both Islamic states and also Arab states, because uh, after the war, uh, China uh, voiced several times on different occasions that uh, the ceasefire are highly urgently needed, uh, and the peace should be restored uh, immediately between Israelis and the Palestinians. And also, China voiced the very urgent humanitarian assistance and aid to the Gaza Strip of the local Palestinians there should be organized immediately to help pacify the tension in the region. So actually, China's voices are widely welcomed by the regional countries, including both Islamic states as well as uh, the Arab states. And meanwhile, China, as a member of the United Nations Security Council, China has been always upholding the principle of the so-called two-state solutions uh, to uh, to seek the settlements, uh, possible settlements of the longer term and well as a just a peace between Israel and Palestinians. So that is why China was chosen by the delegation from Islamic states and Arab states as the first destination. And also I think China will continually uh, continue to uh, contribute a larger, uh, a larger uh, role in the future for the peace process between Israelis and the Palestinians together with both Islamic states and also the Arab states. That was Associate Professor Wang Jin of the Institute of Middle East Studies at Northwest University in Xi'an. Well, meantime, China's ambassador to the United Nations has called on the Security Council to effectively address the root causes of conflict. Zheng Jun made the remarks as China chaired a signature debate on Monday focused on promoting sustainable peace through common development. Jody Jacobs reports from New York. According to China, many regional conflicts today are directly linked to the inadequate development, which it says is often a result of extreme poverty, a lack of jobs and poor infrastructure. And while the Chinese ambassador reiterated the need to promote peace through development, he too had this to say about ongoing conflicts. We have taken note that some countries using democracy and human rights as pretext blatantly interfere in the internal affairs of other states and even impose governance models on others. Such practices have led to protracted unrest in some regions as well as a surge in cross-border refugees and migrants and ultimately backfired on the perpetrators themselves. States have different national conditions as well as historical and cultural contexts. We must fully respect the right of each country to choose its own development path and support each country in choosing a governance model that accords with its national conditions. Also in attendance at Monday's gathering was the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He says there is a pattern playing out across the world, saying the closer a country is to conflict, the farther it is from sustainable and inclusive development. Inequalities and lack of opportunities, decent jobs and freedom can breed frustration and raise the specter of violence and instability. 
weak institutions and corruption increase the risk of conflict. Climate chaos and environmental degradation are further crisis multipliers. But the African countries and the Council were quite vocal about promoting sustainable peace through development. The representative of Ghana says investing in development, especially in Africa, should not just be talk, but it should be action. Several other speakers and the Council on Monday reiterated the need for better financing for developing countries, with the United Arab Emirates saying the Council cannot expect peace if the world does not invest in it. That was Jody Jacobs reporting. Coming up, direct flights between the Chinese and U.S. capitals have resumed. A pizzeria in a small village in rural China? You heard it. And it serves pizza with stinky mandarin fish, something even some Chinese cannot take. Why would its American owner, Adrian Brill, launch the business in the village? How has it become a Moscow restaurant attracting gluttons flying thousands of miles just for a bite? And after being appointed as a rural ambassador, what's his plan for promoting local development? Check out Adrian's unique experience of integrating his personal interests into China's rural revitalization in the last episode of our special series, My Expat Life in Rural China, on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. We're at 12 minutes past the hour. Well, Air China's resumed fl- uh, flights between Beijing and Washington. Direct passenger services between the two national capitals are now available for the first time after the COVID-19 pandemic. Yo Yang takes a closer look from Beijing Capital International Airport. The flight number CA817 operates twice a week, with the return leg CA818 make it stop over in Los Angeles. Well, since the easing of the COVID-19 pandemic, the resumption of flights between China and the United States has been closely monitored. According to the Civil Aviation Administration of China, during the 2023-2024 winter and spring flight season, the number of regular passenger flights between China and the United States expect to increase from the 48 per week to 70, providing greater convenience for personnel and economic and trade exchanges between the two sides. And earlier we had talked to some of the international passengers on how they feel about the resumption. I think the direct flight is very convenient. Before, it took me around 20 hours to travel from Beijing to Washington, D.C., and I need to make a stopover at other cities. Now, with the direct flight, it takes me only 13 to 14 hours to travel to Washington, D.C. If we have a direct flight now to Germany, it's very, let's say, close to Poland. Maybe you still don't have uh, direct flights to Poland, yeah, but uh, I believe uh, to Germany is still very convenient for us uh, to travel like this, yeah. This is the accord with Chinese President Xi Jinping's words when he meeting with the U.S. President Joe Biden during the APEC summit and he said he increased the two sides to increase people-to-people exchanges and also that's increased increasing tourism and adding dialogue, especially in the, uh, in the increasing the flight sector. And also, as we mentioned, that will increase the frequent exchanges between the two sides. We have also seen that Air China will increase a flight from Beijing to San, to San Francisco, well, starting from November 30. And Another airline from China, Hainan Airlines, is going to resume from Beijing to Boston starting from November 26. At the same time, China Southern Airlines and China Eastern Airlines will also starting to resume uh, flights between China and the United States. That was Yo Yang reporting. 
China and the U.S. are set to witness a significant increase in direct passenger flights. The number of regular direct flights will surge from 48 to 70 per week during the winter 2023 to spring 24 seasons. Domestic carriers are playing a crucial role in this expansion, with popular routes like Beijing-San Francisco, Shanghai-San Francisco, and Guangzhou-San Francisco reinstated. Uh, the number of inbound and outbound bookings for China during the last two months surpassed 4.4 million. That's up seven and a half times from the same period last year. It's estimated that by the end of the new aviation season in March, the volume of international passenger flights will reach approximately 70% of the levels observed in 2019 before the pandemic. And for more, Michael Wong spoke with John Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. So let me start with a very high level a question. Given the complexity of the China-U.S. relationship, how do you view the significance of the increase in direct flights between the two countries? What signals, Professor Gong, does this move send to the world about where China-U.S. ties stand right now? Um, as we all know, um, this is the direct result out of the, um, the, the meeting between President Xi and President Biden a few days ago in San Francisco. And I think um, increasing more flights, uh, including in particular the direct flight um, between Beijing and Washington, D.C., which used to be called the capital-to-capital -capital flight, is long, long overdue. Um, I think it's it, it, particularly, you know, the latter flight I was talking about uh, has symbolic significance because, you know, after all, the two largest countries in terms of economy size, um, how can they have no direct flights between the two capitals? Right? Uh, I, I, I don't know about you. I, mean, I have taken that flights uh, many, many times in the past from Beijing to Washington, D.C., into Dallas Airport uh, uh, in Virginia. And, and that's a very, very convenient flight. And I think, um, you know, it, it's really symbolic and also indicates what's up to come. Um, you know, the, the, the interactions between the countries, particularly people-to-people -people exchanges, uh, will have to increase. And I think, um, you know, they have to uh, uh, travel over there, or people in America have to travel over to China uh, to increase people-to-people uh, -people exchanges. And I think, you know, this is a very positive development, um, and I think it signifies that the bilateral relationship is, is really coming back. Yeah, and speaking of people-to-people -people exchanges, Professor Gong, will this increase indirect flights from 48 to 70 each week, will that have a meaningful impact in terms of increasing those people-to-people -people exchanges that you mentioned, in terms of increasing commercial ties, and of course, tourism? Well, we're talking about, you know, increasing supply by, uh, I think, 70 percent, I think, right, 70, 80 percent. And, and the, with the increase in supply, it, what it means is that uh, the, at least the price is likely to drop, as, as your program has just reported. Uh, and I think this is vitally important. You know, we, we have seen in, in the last few months that the flights between the two countries are way too expensive. Um, and, um, you know, with the supply increasing, with more flights uh uh, coming on board with more flights into more American cities, um, I think the you know the the, the fare price would uh, likely to uh, drop significantly um, within the you know normal range that people can afford. I think we're very likely to see the the pre-pandemic 2019 level kind of a, a level of pricing, uh, and and you know with uh, reduced price, it will stimulate demand, and uh, you know there will be more people traveling in both ways. So I think uh, you know it, it contributes to the um, in traffic increase in traffic volume, and you know that's that's a very good thing from a social welfare perspective. You know uh, price coming down. 
uh, market equilibrium, size of the market equilibrium becomes larger, which is a very good thing from a social welfare perspective. That was John Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel, analyzing the significance of the increase in direct flights between China and the United States. OpenAI co-founder and CEO Sam Altman was fired on Friday, then hired on Monday to lead a new research uh, AI research team at Microsoft. Uh, since then, hundreds of staff at OpenAI have threatened to quit and join him at Microsoft. Mark Neo has details. It's been a whirlwind of drama over the past few days at OpenAI, the San Francisco nonprofit research organization that also has a for-profit subsidiary. It was only about a year ago that OpenAI introduced the world to ChatGPT, a generative AI chatbot that can answer questions, write speeches and papers, and much more with just a simple command prompt. CEO Sam Altman actually appeared at the Apex CEO Summit on Thursday, November 16th, where he talked about how generative AI will be the most transformative and beneficial technology humanity has yet invented. He gave no indication trouble was brewing. Then on Friday, OpenAI published a blog announcing Altman's dismissal. The blog said the board conducted a deliberative review process, which concluded Altman was not consistently candid in his communications with the board, and that the board no longer has confidence in his ability to continue to lead. Then on Saturday, the news site The Information reported that OpenAI's chief strategy officer wrote a memo to employees that things were optimistic that Altman would return to the company. But on Sunday, that all changed. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella announced he had hired Altman to lead a new advanced AI research team at Microsoft. Microsoft is a major financial backer of OpenAI. In fact, on November 6th, Nadella made a surprise appearance on stage with Altman at OpenAI's Developer Day. As for OpenAI, when Altman was dismissed, they made CTO Mira Murati the company's interim leader. But that has changed too, and now former Twitch CEO Emmett Shear has been named as OpenAI's new interim CEO. That means OpenAI has had its third CEO in three days. So many questions remain, like how will Keybacker Microsoft continue to work with OpenAI now that it's hired its former boss who left in a very embarrassing fashion? Altman still has plenty of support within OpenAI, so how will those employees feel about working under the new administration? After all, many of those employees are considered some of the brightest minds in the generative AI field. That was Mark Neal reporting. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is urging the world to use AI and science to end malnutrition. Climate change, conflict and population rise mean ever greater challenges to food supplies. So we need a fundamental shift in the way that we approach food security with a focus on long-term solutions to stop food crises before they start. And we need to harness the full power of science and technology to ensure supplies are resilient to threats like conflict, drought and floods. Sunak was joined by ministers, diplomats and philanthropists from around 20 countries at a one-day global food security summit in London. He says the UK will step up a virtual science hub linking international researchers working on more resilient crops. The Kashir area is one of the three components of the newly founded pilot free trade zone in Xinjiang. As Gao Junior reports, enterprises are flocking to Kashir, leveraging favorable policies to seek growth. It's late on a Saturday afternoon, yet staff from Cathay Prosperity e-commerce corporation in Kashir are still busy packing up goods and loading them onto trucks. 
Those commodities for the upcoming Black Friday will soon hit the road for Tashkent, Uzbekistan, for further distribution to Central Asia, West Asia, and Europe. Founded in 2020, Cathay Prosperity has already achieved remarkable growth, with exports exceeding 14 million units in 2022, and trade volume reaching 290 million yuan, or nearly 41 million U.S. dollars. Founder Zhang Qi attributes the success to Kashi's strategic location amid China's westward opening up. Kashi not only links Central Asia but also Europe. It's a historical hub of the Silk Road that's now buzzing with new energy. Kashi sits right in the heart of the Silk Road. The distance from Shenzhen to Kashi is about the same as from Kashi to the Mediterranean Sea. From Kashi, we can reach Eastern Europe in just seven to ten days by road, passing through a market of 700 million people. It's a huge market. Zhang Qi highlights the significant support from the local government. Since we started, we've been a key incubation project in the Kashi Economic Development Zone. We've received support in facilities, policies, and training, and we benefit from rent exemptions and reduced utility costs. Wei Gongzhe has been in the vehicle export business to Central Asia since 2017. He says he used to export the vehicles by sea. Now, 95% of his exports are done via land passes in Xinjiang. Before it took 20 days to ship vehicles to Russia, and even longer to Central Asia. Now, with road transport, our exports reach Tashkent and Bishkek in just seven days, greatly reducing payment periods and benefiting our business. Wei says Kashi Customs provides efficient processing, ensuring swift inspections and timely departures, which boosts the business operation. Data from the first three quarters of the year shows that Kashi's import and export volume hit 61 billion yuan, an increase of 90 percent, accounting for one quarter of Xinjiang's total. This is the highest volume and fastest growth in the region. Ainiwar Tuarshin is the administrative commissioner of Kashi Prefecture. He says Kashi is accelerating its opening up to contribute to Xinjiang's overall economic expansion. Kashi's regional opening up strategy aligns with China's westward opening up. We're focused on positioning Kashi as a key economic hub along the Silk Road and as a gateway for China's westward opening. The Kashi area of the Xinjiang Pilot Free Trade Zone spans 28 square kilometers. It's geared for developing industries in agricultural processing, textile manufacturing, logistics, and new energy. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Gao Junya. Coming up, the UN issues another grim warning about climate change. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. 25 past the hour now. A United Nations report has sounded another alarm on climate change. It says the world faces two and a half to 2.9 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels if governments do not boost action.、And、that's well above the target of one and a half degrees adopted by the Paris Agreement. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has been warning of grave consequences. The report shows that the emissions gap is more like an emissions canyon. A canyon littered with broken promises, broken lives, and broken records. All of this is a failure of leadership, a betrayal of the vulnerable, 
and a massive missed opportunity. Leaders must drastically up their game now with record ambition, record action, and record emissions reductions. The next round of national climate plans will be pivotal. These plans must be backed with the finance, technology, support, and partnerships to make them possible. The task of leaders at COP28 is to make sure that happens. At three degrees Celsius of warming, scientists predict the world could pass several catastrophic points of no return. John Christensen is the director of the UN Environment Program Copenhagen Climate Center, and he says countries are not doing enough to advance the use of renewable energy to curb climate change. If you look at how much money is still being invested in oil and gas exploration at a time where all the international energy agencies and everybody else says we have enough capacity to meet what we need in the short term and in the long term we need really to move towards non-fossil resources over time, wind, solar, hydro. But in most countries renewables is fully competitive It's if it's on market conditions. And in some countries, developing countries, there may be need for financial support and guarantees to make it work. But that's the way to go and there's no alternative. Well, I mean, we have <clears throat> seen what happened with the plans that were submitted to parents. There's a big discrepancy between what countries said they would do and also the ambitions they set themselves on the temperatures. Then we've been monitoring every year how much is the ambitions growing. And I think we have a gap of, let's say, 20, 20 gigatons around that. We've seen increase in ambition of about five. So we need really to put ambitions up by three or four times in the really short term. Countries are being asked to set new climate plans by 2025. And I think if they can agree at COP28 for the roadmap and the ambition level to do that, then I think we have a good chance of coming up with ambitious plan. You won't see them at COP now. That's unrealistic. I think where you'll see movement at COP now maybe on some of what we call short-lived gases, on methane and some of the HFCs that are really potent, very short-lived. So if you can reduce those quickly, you get a bit of a breathing space in the short term. So there will be a lot of focus on that. That was John Christensen, director of the UN Environment Program, Copenhagen Climate Center. We're at 28 past the hour. Beijing's at plus two overnight. It'll be cloudy with a high of 16 on Wednesday. Chongqing will get a light rainfall and a low of 11 overnight, then cloudy in 18. Last is down to zero, then sunny and 12 degrees. Hong Kong's at 20 tonight, then sunny with a high of 26. Elsewhere, Tokyo's eight degrees this evening. It'll see a slight rainfall in 18 on Wednesday. It's time for a short break. So far uh, this hour, uh, the head of Hamas says the group is uh, close to reaching a truce with Israel. Air China's resumed direct flights between Beijing and Washington, D.C. A new report from the U.N. includes a grim warning about rising global temperatures. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. An additional Railway Company, Deutsche Director of the International the Monetary Fund, Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. 
Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你 This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点。Or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了，我是本地人。There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好。Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Shane Bigham, with you on this Tuesday. Still to come. In business, the China International Supply Chain Expo. In sports, China faces South Korea in a World Cup qualifier. In culture and entertainment. China's top buzzwords for 2023. To contact us, you can email radio at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter at cgtn radio. But first of all, with today's headline news, here's Wang Zhang. Thank you, Shane. The chief of Hamas says the group is close to reaching a truce with Israel. Ismail Haniyeh made the remarks Tuesday on social media site Telegram. This came after 12 people were killed at a Gaza hospital encircled by Israeli tanks. The Palestinian side has so far reported over 13,000 deaths, while Israel's tally is around 1,200. The United Nations, United Nations Security General Antonio Guterres has emphasized the significance of development at a Security Council open debate. Human development lights the way to hope, promoting prevention, security, and peace. This is why advancing peace and advancing sustainable, inclusive development go hand in hand. Building peace means ensuring food security, access to education and skill development, health care. Social protection and dignity for all. Building peace means strengthening resilience to climate shocks and investing in adaptation. The UN chief says the closer a country is to conflict, the further it is from sustainable and inclusive development. Guterres has also expressed gratitude to China for organizing the debate, saying it is a vital issue. Chinese UN Ambassador Jiang Jun says Beijing chose to organize the meeting as a signature event of its November presidency. Air China has resumed flights between Beijing and Washington. Direct passenger pass services between the two national capitals are now available for the first time after the COVID-19 pandemic. The carrier is also looking to add more flights between Beijing and the U.S. city of Los Angeles. Heavy fighting has killed at least 32 people in the disputed area of RBA, claimed by both Sudan and South Sudan. The administrator's office for RBA says the violence erupted early on Sunday following a revenge attack last week, which killed 34. The office also alleges the soldiers of South Sudanese Army aided the attackers. For years, local communities have been contesting the ownership of a territory in the border area. Intercommunal clashes have escalated since South Sudan deployed troops to the RBA region in March. The International Organization for Migration says rescuers have saved around 600 illegal migrants off the coast of Libya in the past week. The UN agency also confirms the return of nearly 15,000 illegal migrants to Libya so far this year. Libya has suffered violence and insecurity since the fall of Muammar al-Gaddafi in 
2011. Many migrants chose to cross the Mediterranean Sea to European shores from the North African country. City officials in Harare, Zimbabwe are working to clean up the streets as people there experience a widespread cholera outbreak. The health ministry has confirmed over 1,200 cases while recording another 8,000 suspected ones. Authorities say over 200 deaths are connected with the outbreak. The World Health Organization estimates that Africa accounted for 20% of cholera cases and 80% of deaths recorded from the, across the globe from 2014 to 2021. China's Meteorological Authority has renewed a yellow alert for a cold wave, which the second most severe in the four-tier warning system. From Tuesday to Friday, temperatures are expected to drop by 6 to 10 degrees Celsius in the middle and lower reaches of the Yangtze River region. The forecast adds that some areas in Inner Mongolia and the northeastern part of the country could see temperatures drop of more than 16 degrees Celsius. The public is advised to take precautions against cold weather and strong winds. China's Ministry of Public Security says Myanmar has transferred 31,000 suspects to Chinese custody in a crackdown on telecom fraud. Since September, Chinese authorities have collaborated with local authorities in Myanmar to carry out law enforcement cooperation. Several ringleaders of the criminal industry have been arrested, with high-profile fugitive Ming Xuechang committing suicide for fear of punishment last week. A Chinese-made helicopter has completed its first round of plateau test flights. The Aviation Industry Corporation of China says the AC-131A is a large civil helicopter. Experts say the move paves the way for more airworthiness flights. Finally, in Australia, a report says veterans of the Australian Defence Force are significantly more likely to die by suicide than the general population. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare published its sixth annual report on death by suicide among current, reserve and former members of the ADF. It revealed that over 1,600 who served in the armed forces took their own lives between 1997 and 2021. The report also showed that suicide rate among female veterans during the period was 107% higher than that of the entire female population of Australia. Thank you very much. That was Wang Zihan. This is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, the China International Supply Chain Expo. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. 37 past the hour now. Turning to business, and here's Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower on Tuesday. Timothy Pope has more. Uh, mainland stocks spent most of the session in positive territory, but they did not manage to hold on to those gains. The uh, Shanghai Composite Index closed flat. 
and the Shenzhen component uh, shed about a quarter of 1% by the end of the day. Property developer stocks, though, were way out in front after media reports that the government has urged commercial banks to step up lending to privately owned real estate companies. And uh, Bloomberg says regulators are working on a list of 50 developers, both private and state-owned, which uh, will be uh, considered eligible for funding, and that list is uh, going to guide banks when it comes to lending and uh, other forms of support. We saw China Vanker and Gemdale, uh, both leading developers, up by uh, more than 3% today, while Metroland Corporation rose by 4.4%. The liquor giant Guizhou Maltai added more than 1.5% too. That followed an announcement of a special cash dividend. Uh, it's proposing to distribute 24 billion yuan in this way, a prospect which definitely uh, got investors excited. That was Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index was down nearly a quarter of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei lost 0.1 percent. Organizers say the upcoming first China International Supply Chain Expo focuses on promoting global industrial and supply chain cooperation with emphasis on green and low-carbon development and digital transformation. It will showcase advanced technology products and future development trends in the supply chain as well as services such as finance, logistics, and platform companies. Participating companies include Fortune Global 500 companies and Chinese Fortune 500 companies. Experts from from different fields were also gathered together to discuss latest research results, cutting-edge science and technology, and future development trends. The China 5G Plus Industrial Internet Conference has just concluded in Wuhan, Hubei province. The event aimed to advance the integration of the digital and real economies, as well as foster innovation in 5G and the industrial internet. It also aimed to gather a variety of resources from different fields to explore new generation information technologies such as 5G and artificial intelligence. Wang Menghui with the Hubei Provincial Committee says the development of the 5G Plus Industrial Industrial Internet is expected to bring opportunities in the new round of te- technological re- revolution. The robust development of the digital economy has significantly changed the global allocation of resources, industrial development patterns, and people's lifestyles. Driving the integrated development of 5G technologies and industrial internet is a strategic choice to seize opportunities in the new round of technological revolution and industrial transformation. As China's first national-level conference in 5G and the industrial internet, it has held the conference for three consecutive years. China has emerged as the largest market for recreational vehicles in Asia, driven by growing incomes and increasing demand. Nearly 3,200 RVs were registered during the first quarter of this year, up 33%. In 2021, China surpassed Japan in sales and total ownerships of RVs to become the largest RV market in Asia. China also exported 60,000 RVs to other countries, with Australia being the major export destination. It has also exported RV parts and processed RV units for Japanese and South Korean companies. For more on China's RV market and auto market at large, Michael Wang spoke with Andy Mock, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Andy, thanks for joining us. So first of all, how do you see the overall growth potential of China's RV market? What are the consumer lifestyle and preferences influencing RV demand in this country? 
You know, the RV space is one of the most exciting ones in China today. Um, it's a broad-based trend from young families, as we heard in the package, uh, who live in urban settings and are looking for a little bit of a more back-to-nature experience, to retirees who have a lot of free time and are looking to travel the country. And this is being uh, strengthened and accelerated by the government's 14th five-year plan uh, to support self-driving tourism. So I think this is a very, very exciting development. It's also early days. So we heard that thousands and I think even tens of thousands of RVs are sold in China today, making it China, Asia's biggest market. But compared to Europe and uh, the United States, where I believe the comparable numbers are maybe more in the hundreds of thousands, uh, there's also a lot of upside uh, for the RV market in China today. Yeah, absolutely. So already the largest uh, RV market here in Asia, I'm talking about the China market, a lot of upside potential, a very exciting market, like you said. But what challenges to growth do you see for the RV market here in China, Andy? What do industry players, you think, absolutely need to do to really address those challenges and perhaps unlock the full market potential? No, that's right, Michael. Even though there's tremendous excitement around this, there's uh, we can think of them as obstacles. We can also think of them as opportunities. Uh, first is market awareness. And, you know, if you've been around Beijing, Shanghai, you notice more and more shopping centers devoting space to uh, camping type uh, displays. So I think there's gro there's a growing awareness, but still it's relatively low. Uh, this has to be an ecosystem as well. So if you have an RV, whether it's an RV or something you're towing behind a vehicle, or as we heard, uh, a retrofitted, custom-fitted UV or, or van, uh, you still need camping sites. You still need other uh, support infrastructure. So this is, I think, another area we can expect to see uh, further growth. And I think just in general, um, we're witnessing the transition to a more consumer-driven economy in China. Uh, but again, I think it's a cup, uh, a glass half empty, a glass half full, in that there's a lot of opportunities, but there's also ways to go as well. That was Andy Mock, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, talking about China's recreational vehicle market. Hainan province is actively establishing itself as a destination for international tourism. The tropical island has made significant efforts to enhance its product offerings and organize a variety of engaging activities. Liao Zhu spoke with industry insiders on the province's efforts from Hainan. Starting this year, Hainan has gradually reopening direct flights to Southeast Asian countries, including Singapore, Malaysia and Thailand. And flights to Hong Kong and Macau have also seen an increase. And that can be seen as a sign of strengthening the connections between these countries and regions. With the continuous opening of overseas flight routes, Hainan has experienced a booming cross-border tourism market, leading to increased business for travel agencies. We have incorporated characteristic elements into our tourism routes, including Hainan's marine culture, natural scenery, minority culture and food. Our Malaysian tour groups were fully booked, and we also registered many tourists from Singapore and Thailand. These numbers have now surpassed those from the same period in 2019. The official resumption of international cruise routes has also brought an increasing number of overseas tourists to Hainan. 
On September 25th, Asia's luxury cruise brand Resorts World One carried more than 1,800 passengers docked at Xi'an International Cruise Terminal. This marked the first international cruise ship welcomed by Xi'an's port since the resumption of these routes. China and ASEAN member countries are important to each other as tourist destinations and source markets. Hainan, a key hub for China facing Southeast Asian markets, has actively hosted rich cultural and tourism events to foster economic and trade collaboration. The friendship between Hainan and ASEAN member countries has been amplified, and multilateral tourism mechanisms have also been strengthened. We make full use of the convenience brought about by the visa-free policy for 59 countries. Ensuring increased convenience for tourists from Southeast Asia and Chinese Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan, we aim to let more overseas tourists transit to Southeast Asia through Hainan, while enjoying the convenience brought about by the tourism in the whole region. The integration of culture and tourism has become a link between Hainan and ASEAN member countries, promoting mutual exchanges as well as economic and social development. That was Liao Zhu reporting. All right, thank you very much. That was Tianyu with Business. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, China faces South Korea in a World Cup qualifier. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Forty-seven minutes past the hour now. Turning to sports, here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. The Chinese national football team plays South Korea in the FIFA World Cup qualifiers on Tuesday night, aiming to grab points in the clash in Shenzhen. China opened the second phase of Asian qualifying with a 2-1 win against Thailand last week. Facing the Group C favorites, Team China head coach Alexander Yankovic says his players will bring their best energy. We will do everything to protect the good moment we created after this game. We talk about scoring goals. I don't make difference with, uh, between strikers and defenders scoring and uh, not uh, conceding goals. It's a process and it's a teamwork. And we have to uh, use that and also make some corrections in order to be more competitive in offensive part and score goals. The last time China beat South Korea was back in 2017 during the World Cup qualifiers when they recorded a famous 1-0 win at home. In the two sides' most recent match, South Korea beat China 3-0 in the East Asian Cup last year. Chinese women's football team head coach Shui Qingxia has stepped down. Shui's team failed to qualify for the Paris Olympics after a one-all tie with South Korea earlier this month. An interim coach will take charge of the team for two friendly matches held in the U.S. in early December. Shui took the reins of the Chinese women's team in 2021. Under her coaching, China won the 2022 Women's Asian Cup, but didn't survive the group stage of the 2023 Women's World Cup and lost to Japan in the semi-final of the Hangzhou Asian Games last month. Defending champion Italy shook off pressures to advance to the 2024 European Championship after a goalless draw with Ukraine. The final whistle came as a relief for Italy after a tense game, which could have dropped them to playoffs if they lost. The scoreless result came as something of a surprise after both teams created plenty of chances. Italian head coach Luciano Spalletti says qualifying for Euro 2024 is a new beginning. Given our recent past, we needed this qualification. 
and when you have people breathing down your neck, it is never easy. It is not easy to take over and make the right choices straight away, because I learned a few things only after I started this new job. Now I think I know a bit more, and I accepted this role because I wanted to qualify, not to find excuses. So I'm glad with this result because it gives us the chance to go back to work, because our real work starts now. Just over two months ago, Italy seemed in trouble after winning only one of its first three games in a tricky group, which also includes England and North Macedonia. England completed an unbeaten qualifying campaign by drawing at North Macedonia one all. Elsewhere, Slovenia qualified for the European Championship for the first time in 24 years after beating Kazakhstan 2-1. Albania and the Czech Republic also reached the Euro 2024 finals. Barcelona midfielder Gavi is set to be sidelined for at least seven months as he will undergo surgery for a knee injury. It means he's unable to play again this whole season. Gavi injured his knee in the first half of Spain's 3-1 win at Georgia in a European Championship qualifier. He limped off the field in the first half after stepping awkwardly while trying to control the ball. Medical tests show that he tore the anterior cruciate ligament in his right knee. China has had a very successful World Wushu Championships, now concluded in Fort Worth, Texas. The national team won 15 gold medals, more than any other team. It's the first time in nearly 30 years the event has been held in the U.S. Tony Waterman caught up, caught up with one of the men who helped to organize the 1995 championships in Baltimore. The last time the World Wushu Championships were held in the United States, Anthony Goh was a young man promoting the event on a local Baltimore TV sports show. In 1995, for example, Santa was very new in the U.S., and I think that World Championship sort of introduced the Santa in the states into the states. And the contemporary Wushu, which is the Taolu, the routine, was popular in one way. But having a World Championship in the United States and with the publicity it received. Between the martial art community, I think that helps to accelerate the promotion of the sport in U.S. In the years that followed, Go says an influx of top-tier coaches and retired athletes from Asia helped the sport to develop in the U.S. At this year's championships, 600 participants representing teams from over 50 countries are competing under the theme of solidarity, peace, and friendship. China's national team has excelled. Winning the most gold medals of any team, while Wushu's global popularity has grown over the decades, Go says there's more work to be done with the ultimate goal of getting the ancient Chinese art added to the Olympic Games. Once you have viewership, your commercial value increase. You have more sponsors. You got. You can increase your popularity. So it, it's all one connected to the other. There's no shortcut. Go hoping that history will repeat itself, boosting the sport's popularity nearly 30 years after the last time the World Wushu Championships were held in the U.S. That was Tony Waterman in Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with sports. Coming up in culture and entertainment, China's top buzzwords for 2023. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X Men: Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world.
8.53 past the hour now. Turning to culture and entertainment, China's Language Research Centers released the candidates for the 2023 buzzwords with Chinese characters and expressions for rejuvenation, prosperity, the Belt and Road Initiative, and the Asian Games on the shortlist. Uh, that list also includes Chinese words for turmoil, crisis, the Palestine-Israel conflict, and China-U.S. relations. The list was compiled through a combination of expert recommendations and big data analysis. The buzzword selection is an annual event that aims to depict domestic and international changes through a single Chinese character or phrase. And the final result is to be unveiled on December 20th. Guizhou Province is a cultural gem brimming with diverse ethnic traditions and heritage. Recently, the local government's been spotlighting these treasures, boosting tourism and preserving the rich culture. Gongmin spoke to local officials and ethnic minorities to find out more. Nestled in the mountainous region of Libo, a county in Qiannan Prefecture, the Baiku Yao, a group from the Yao people, called this land's home. They once lived in some of the most impoverished and remote areas in the region, but a government-led relocation program beginning in the 1950s helped them relocate to more accessible areas. As we enter the village, local residents warmly greet us with traditional dances and skills, showing off their talents. The traditional architecture and dress of the Yao people reflect their unique way of life. The local government has repurposed unused land to build tourist facilities such as homestays, transforming the area into a destination promoting the nation's intangible cultural heritage. This not only boosts the local economy, but also spreads their traditional culture to a wider audience. This road is like a dividing line. Once you venture deeper in, you'll see that about 80% of the indigenous people and historic structures are well preserved. Here we encourage local minority indigenous communities to maintain their traditional way of life, including heritage workshops. We'll handle the purchases, which not only helps protect their culture, but also allows them to generate income. In 2006, the unique dyeing techniques of Bai Ku Yao's traditional clothing earned them a spot on China's National Intangible Cultural Heritage List. Wang Jingyin, a heritage inheritor, has also stepped out of the mountains. Besides making clothing for personal use, she offers demonstrations and guidance on traditional Yao dyeing techniques to students and tourists. Life has improved a lot. We used to do everything ourselves, making our own clothes when we had time. Now working here, we had a salary and don't need to do farm work, allowing us to focus on making clothes. In Sandu Shui Autonomous County, a traditional embroidery craft called Maui Shou, made from horse hair and Shui language calligraphy, have been recognized as national intangible cultural heritage. The local government has taken steps to promote them by establishing an experience center where people can learn about the ethnic group's culture. After setting up this platform, we plan to engage in business activities such as turning horsehair embroideries into handmade craft products to sell. The local government promotes the culture of ethnic minorities and protects intangible cultural heritage by developing the cultural and tourism industry. It's hoped that this approach will balance economic benefits with positive social impacts. That was Gongmen in Guizhou.
A Buddhist temple in northwest China, dating back more than 1,600 years, is reopened to the public after two years of restoration. Dayun Temple in Ube, Gansu Province, is on the ancient Silk Road route. Uh, the latest restoration project started in 2021, as the building complex had broken floors, cracked tiles, and other damage. Well, after the reopening, visitors are able to enjoy exhibitions on the temple's history, as well as wooden screens and wooden carriages. The temple is uh, mostly renowned for the Bronze Bell and Bell Tower that dates back to the Tang Dynasty. Right, 58 minutes past the hour, Beijing's at plus two overnight. It'll be cloudy with the high of 16 on Wednesday. Uh, Chongqing will get a light rainfall with a low of 11 overnight, then cloudy in 18. Lass is down to zero, then sunny in 12 degrees. Hong Kong's at 20 tonight, then sunny with the high of 26. Elsewhere, Tokyo's eight degrees overnight. It'll see a slight rainfall in 18 on Wednesday. Islamabad's at eight degrees this evening, followed by sunny skies in 24. Bangkok's down to 23 degrees, then overcast in 33. In Africa, Nairobi is getting a slight rainfall in 23 degrees Celsius. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 19 this evening, a light rainfall in 25 on Wednesday. Auckland's 14 tonight, then a light rain in 21. Port Vila will see a light rain in 30 degrees Celsius. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, the head of Hamas says the group is close to reaching a truce with Israel. And Air China's resumed direct flights between Beijing and Washington, D.C. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.